um, scour mental homes for young women who were quite vulnerable. One time he had, I think, believe he had five women in his basement. When one woman died, he ended up feeding the surviving women the remains of her body. Oof. They then locked her in the outhouse, so that would have been about 1980, and she wasn't released until 2005. He had six teenage girls kidnapped and held in various properties that he owned around Belgium. His mother had even gone to the police and said he's holding girls captive in his basement, and the police just ignored him. He built his um, dungeon and he just hired contractors and just bought them in and said, I want to somewhere to store my things. But they didn't realise that the things that he was storing were humans. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 9. Very excited about this installment of the program. Uh, this is a strange episode in a way because it came from just sort of uh, shooting the breeze on a previous edition of the show. When I was talking to Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman, I kind of said offhandedly how much I'd love to learn more about uh, cases where people are held captive, uh, specifically like that story in Cleveland that made huge news over the last couple of years. And lo and behold, you know, I finished that episode and start looking around on the Internet and kind of dawns on me. I'm like, somebody has to have written a book on this. And then, thankfully, I find Captive Humans which was written by David Phoebe, and you can find out more about it at CaptiveHumans.com. And immediately I was like, this is too serendipitous not to do a show about, and I am really fascinated by the topic. So I think it's perfect to be OA audio material. As I said, you can find out more about it at CaptiveHumans.com. The book is Captive Humans Chronicles 28 Cases of People Who Are held captive, and I kind of struggled with the way to describe this, and we'll, we'll get into this uh, as we talk a little bit, but uh, they're kidnapped, but in some cases they aren't kidnapped. In some cases it's a completely different scenario, so it's hard. They're all very unique situations. What they all have in common is that these people are held against their will for sometimes unimaginable lengths of time and, and, and suffer from unimaginable uh, horrors during these ordeals. So... It's going to be a creepy show, it's going to be an enlightening show, and uh, I think it's really going to be a fascinating show as well. David, welcome to BOA Audio. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Hey, Tim. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here, and I, um, I'm happy to tell your audience a bit about uh, the stories of people held captive across the world. It's some amazing stuff. It really is. And I actually went all this time uh, introducing the program and didn't even mention. David is coming to us all the way from Australia, where it is uh, 11 at night for him, and right now it's 9 a.m. for me. So for the folks who are wondering why we didn't do this one live, it's because uh, I don't... (laughs) I could. I don't know if I could do a live show at 9 a.m. It's <laughs> it's a bit crazy. So it's also the middle of winter here for us as well. So it's, um, I've got a chest infection. So you have to forgive me for that. That happens in winter. So no worries. Duly noted. We'll be we'll be perfectly fine. Don't worry about that. And uh, it's just really cool to be coming at you from all the way uh, across the world here, putting together this conversation. So David, tell us a little bit about. 
you know, who is David Phoebe and what led you to writing this book? Okay, um, I started writing my first article for newspapers when I was about 17 for my local newspaper and then um, did some writing courses and ended up writing for um, other newspapers and um, was a house writer for a while with an Australian magazine and I uh, did some writing for television as I continued studying and then I swapped over and started studying uh, criminal justice and uh, that's where I um, currently work in criminal justice and I wanted to one day I thought I want to keep you know I finally want to actually write a book so and I had a look I was interested in um, people who've been held captive but I couldn't find a book um, that summed it up and, sound and like me now <laughs> yeah well the cases have been all over the place for me like and some of them didn't have the conclusion I couldn't find what happened or you know there was big parts missing right so um what I did is, when I was, I remember the case from when I was about, um, probably about 17 as well, and it was about David Bisson, who was held captive by his mother in France for about eight years, and I read the newspaper article about that, um, and after how he had escaped after being locked in the cupboard. And that sort of stayed with me, and then... Um, when the uh, Fritzl case broke, which um, everyone would know about, or mm-hmm. most people would, um, I became intrigued with that and sort of obsessive over the Fritzl case. And I started writing a blog about um, the lesser-known cases uh, because I knew there were ones out there like David Gisson um, so that didn't get any mention. But um, I didn't sort of... I, I, for some reason, I made it sort of try to do a bit comedic and it, it didn't work and it's just stayed there for a long time. I only did a few cases before it petered off, as blogs often do. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, it, I, yeah, it got a total of 71 hits when I went back a few years later when I decided to start writing Captive Humans. I went, okay, we can do, have to do this in a completely different way. Right, right. Um, yeah, so it was basically I couldn't find a book that um, sort of put the cases the way I was looking to see them. But also I wanted to make sure that when I wrote the book, the book had... Um, that was short. Um, I wanted to make sure each chapter was short, but you got the whole story from start to finish. Right. You had a a narrative that that went through it, and it was easily digestible. And I wanted it to be so that you could read a chapter on your way to work or your way to the shops or wherever you go, or you're catching a train. Right, Right. by the time you finish reading it, you'd understand the story. And if you wanted to go further and find out about a particular case, you could go and research that um, story, but you knew the overall story. So that's how it came together. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point because it's, uh, it's fantastically well put together. i got to give you kudos here because the way you nailed it there, because the way I read it, you know, I would sit and I would pop in a couple cases. You know, I'd do about three or four. You can only – it's it, in a way, it's kind of – you need to read it that way. I think you probably need to put it together that way, in a sense. You know, you can't, you can't over. This is not an all-in-one sitting type book. It's kind of like a nice, a nice leisurely kind of. Uh, you know, as sort of paradoxical as it sounds, folks. I'm going to recommend this as like a beach book, because this is perfect. Uh, you know, I, I know it's winter where you are, David, but here it's uh, the yeah. summertime, and I think it's a for BOA audio readers. It's the kind of perfect companion if you're going on a trip, because you know you might have. Maybe be able to steal away 20 minutes, 30 minutes here and there, and this book 
you can just, uh, like I said, pop in a couple cases and, and they're, they're all really, really compelling stuff. Uh, it's just yeah. absolutely compelling and stuff. Surprisingly enough, you know, when you read the cases, you'll realize that, um, many of them start to link in with each other and, and they have, you know, you think, oh, that's an isolated case, but you later down the track, there's a, a connection to another case. Um, so um, we'll um, cover that, I'm sure. Mm, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And as I said when we started out the program, it's kind of interesting because I did struggle in a way with how to describe the scenario, if you will, because one interesting aspect that emerges from the book is that there's this variety of motivations for these cases. Well, the one that I think everybody goes to immediately because it's uh, titillating, of course, is that's the sex element, that these people are being held captive for sex. But you have to get beyond that because then there's all kinds of other reasons why these things are happening in the different cases. Uh, one guy really wants to, to father like 10 children, so he has this elaborate scheme. Uh, we'll get into that case in a little bit. But there's there's the, what really heartbreaking uh, that happens again and again is these cases of uh, parental abuse where parents just uh, completely neg- not neglect the child, but just, uh, well, just keep them captive, lock them away in a room or, or in the basement or in a shed for for just an amazing length of time. And, it's, you know, there's, in, in, in a lot of those cases, there's not some sex element there. It's like almost uh, like a perverse shame or something. Uh, and I'm sure, as I said, we're going to get into cases like that as well. And then there's like, there's sort of a money motivation in some of these instances, uh, you know, where people are being held captive and, and whoever's holding them captive is, is reaping the rewards of uh, their work or, or their uh, social security or something like that. So I guess before we dive into the specific cases, talk a little bit about how this is sort of a wide-ranging phenomenon. It's not – these aren't sex slaves, you know. These aren't, uh, these aren't people that are just captive – to be used for the for the pleasure of of the captor. These are these are all kinds of reasons why these things happen. Yeah, so some of them are um, sex slaves, mm-hmm. and yeah, that is the one that most people will focus on. And but there's a one that something that uh, turned up was a lot of people with disability are held um, captive and abused for many years, um, either by their family members or by people wanting to take advantage of them. Um, and also, a lot of it is, um, of course, control and domination, and that the people who have um, been the perpetrators have, you know, often have terrible backgrounds themselves. Mm. And so, it sort of it doesn't seem to happen in isolation. It tends to be um, sort of often a lot of forewarning or a lot of clues that are missed along the way about um, when. Uh, it's eventually discovered that people have been held captive. And um, there's also the unique element of um, self-captivity. Um, so where there's two particular cases that um, Natasha Ryan and uh, Kanye Cash have... Uh, it appears that they weren't technically held captive, but... Um, or may have been held captive. It, it's you know it, some of that's up for debate about what what occurred. Um, so you know it's up to the reader, I guess, to make their opinion on that. Right. I forgot about that whole element too. That yeah, there are there are cases in the book where you're you're really left puzzled as to what exactly happened in this instance. And the Tasha Ryan one is definitely uh, definitely the key case in that regard. 
Uh, now, before the interview, I sent you, I cherry-picked my quote-unquote favorite uh, cases from the book, sure. or the ones that particularly stood out to me. Uh, as we said, there's 28 cases in there, folks, ranging across 11 countries, which I think is really fascinating, and uh, we'll explore as we go on, because each country sort of has its own cultural reaction to this, which is really, really, really fascinating, because we've seen it unfold here in America, and, how, and even it's changed here yeah. in America, uh, in a way, because uh, I noticed something uh, as we... As I was going over the notes again before uh, the show, I want to make sure I bring up. But let's jump into the cherry-picked cases here. And I started out with the one that really originally sort of, I've always been interested in this, but kind of re reinserted the bee in my bonnet on the captive humans phenomenon. And that was, uh, I saw an episode, I think there's a show about captive humans now. I'm pretty sure there is. Um, because I saw a show, okay. I think it's just called Kidnapped, so it's probably uh, okay. a variety of uh, things. I think it's on Netflix, but if you Google Colleen Stan, you'll be able to find it, because she was, like, I think on the premiere episode, or she was her case was the premiere episode. Um, and I was just completely fascinated by this. There's so many weird elements to this case and horrifying elements. You've got sort of a weird Bonnie and Clyde uh, accomplice situation with the with the wife, of the uh, kidnapper. Yeah. You've got the mind control elements that are there. You've got something that completely is mind-blowing on these cases of a captive human where she ends up going back to uh, to visit her family while under uh, the auspices, I guess you could say, of, of, of the kidnapper. So there's a lot going on in this case that is really, really unique and interesting and strange and unsettling. So share the Colleen Stan story with the folks here uh, listening. You know, thumbnail it. You don't have to... Give us the full uh, yeah. Monty, if you will, but give us the sort of the beginning, middle, and end, if you will. Okay, so Colleen Stan, uh, uh, she was found, released in uh, a escape in Red Bluff in California in 1984. Colleen had been travelling to see a friend for her birthday when she decided to hitchhike, and she tried um, a few people to hitchhike with, and then eventually came across a couple in a car, Cameron Hooker and his wife, she thought because they had a baby that they would be safe to go with. Um, though when she went to the bathroom along the way, she found, she said something told her to run, but she just ignored it. And during, um, during the kidnap, they took her to an isolated spot and put a um, something over her head called a head box, which was basically a wooden box padded, and then another wooden box, and that was locked so that she couldn't scream. And this would become a major theme in her um, her kidnapping. Is that it was all related to boxes because once they he was heavily into um, sadomasochism. Yeah. But his wife Janice was getting tired of it and needed a break. They had children, so um, so part of the agreement was the couple together would uh, kidnap. Another young woman, Janice Spice. So essentially, what you're saying, uh, leading into the story, is that she's he's into bondage and that kind of stuff, and so the, yeah. and, and the wife can't take it anymore, and and so they're like she she agrees to uh, I guess get him a new toy, if you will, as as sick as that is. That's Correct. what it is yeah. in this in this sick relationship. She's tired of being the victim of uh, or you know the uh, the outlet. For his for his bondage fantasies, so she's like, well, just instead of leaving the guy and taking the kid, she she agrees to kidnap a young woman 
uh, and go along with this crazy scheme, which is which is bizarre in and of itself. But I guess, uh, hey, that was the 70s, folks. Yeah, and she also became like a, you know, a domestic servant as well. So not only a sex slave, but someone's helping around the house and also looking after their children. Um, when um, when Colleen is first kidnapped, she's placed in a box and she's confined for four months. And this is a part of... Cameron Hooker's idea of isolating the victim to make sure that they don't have any contact with anyone else and makes them, uh, the victim very dependent on um, on their captor. Huh. And so and this starts becoming quite common through other cases. Fritzl did the same. He would chain his um, Elizabeth up. And the, the isolation, but also the restraint as well. And... But then he also used another uh, technique, and he called, which was called the company. And he told her that there was a, an overreaching company across the United States that kidnapped other young women and held them captive. And they all knew about her. And this could be uh, police officers um, or just local people in the street. So anywhere she, if she saw anyone, it would be instant fear and believe that if she disobeyed him in any way, um, because they were always watching, that her family would be killed. So he tried to test how much he could control her by letting her return home for 24 hours and telling her that the company was looking, after, looking out for him and making sure that she didn't do anything wrong. So then 24 hours later, he contacts her and comes and picks her up and takes her back home. But feeling... Anxious that he may have given himself away, he then builds an, another box, and um, which is inside a, a larger box, and he hides them under the family bed, uh, the marital bed, for three years. And Colleen lives under the bed, and she's under there so long, even the the children who are starting to grow up now don't even recognise that she's in the house. Let me stop so, you there, just to drive the point home to folks. Like she's locked in a box. How often was she even let out of the box to to go to the bathroom or to clean her up or anything? I'm talking three years, folks. I, I don't know if I could do like I don't know if I could do three hours in a box like that. Three years. That's that's amazing. Well, she was only let out of the box when his wife wasn't home because his wife had sort of almost like turned a turned a blind eye to her by then. Um, he'd started returning to uh, returning to abusing his wife and he seems someone who was uh, masochistic by nature and didn't wish to make ever a complaint against her husband. She was until she went to a church and then confessed to a priest about um, about what was going on where she told them to escape. Uh, no, she told Janice to escape from her husband, which she didn't do, uh, and later the police were alerted. Then Colleen was told by Janice that the company didn't exist. When Colleen found out the company didn't exist, the world crumbled for Cameron because he, he lost that control. And she, the next day she went to a bus shelter and um, took away, you know, made her way home, but without telling the police. And the police weren't told for another three months because Colleen was still in contact with her kidnapper. Huh. Um, she still had a strange relationship happening Um and it would be quite a while before, by the time three months came, a lot of the evidence had been destroyed, And but there was enough to still charge um, Cameron Hooker with the crime. 
Right, right. What became of Janice uh, following the case? Because I know he went to jail, but what didn't she uh, pretty much kind of kind of get away? Yeah, Janice didn't really have much of a didn't. Um, she was never punished for uh, participating in any of the crimes, and she actually became when returned to her maiden name and um, believed to work as a like, like a social worker in California still. So it's quite a, a quite a different lifestyle to, from the one that she had. Yeah, that's amazing to to think that she was certainly complicit. I mean, I know she was also kind of a victim of this guy, but at the same time, she was also pretty complicit in the whole thing. And it's like she just kind of nothing ever really happens to her. That's that's spooky. No, um, yeah, it's just, and it's also, um, it's just also interesting that there does seem to be a fair amount of um, women who are involved in crimes, um, these crimes. It's often perceived that it tend to be just a male holding um, a female in a dungeon and, and that's how it had turned out. Um, but uh, often females have very active roles, whether they're um, their husbands, uh, with their husbands or with, um, you know, they're the instigators themselves. Right. Exactly. That's a that's a key point. Okay, that's the Colleen Stan case. We're going to kind of jump, uh, keep going here so I don't... Uh Sure. So we don't focus because we could, like you said about each chapter. I mean, you could do a whole show on each one of these cases. That's how that's how crazy they are. So we need to uh, to make sure people get a, a yeah. wide sampling of all this stuff. Now, another one in the book that really stood out to me was Gary Heidnick. He's the guy I alluded to earlier. Who uh, his obsession was was to was to father like ten children. He'd already fathered other children, but they kept getting taken away from him. And so he had to, yeah. so he had to, uh, kidnap women and, and try and get them pregnant to, to have a baby, have many babies, really. Uh, it's quite the twisted, uh, plan, if you will. But I thought what was interesting, too, is the key part that stood out to me is, and it, it, you see it from time to time in these cases. Once the, once everything goes down and they capture the, the kidnapper, they they can't handle it and they kill themselves like the dude in Cleveland, Ariel Castro, uh, another guy later in the book, Wolfgang Proclopil. He kills himself like immediately after the victim escapes. Cool. And this guy, when they arrest him, he keeps trying to kill himself. So it's like God, uh, the weakness of these people <laughs> once they lose control is remarkable. Yeah, the, um, it's true. Yeah, the, there are a number of suicides of the um, captors straight after they've been arrested or, you know, when things are getting close. Um, also, Paul Hose with the um, Tanya Cash case, uh, he attempted suicide as well. And also, one of the first stories I started with was um, Susan Jeannie Wiley, which is an interesting case. If anyone wants to look it up, that a girl held captive by her parents in her bedroom for 12 years in Acadia. And, and he committed suicide, the father... And, who held a captive committed suicide on the day of the court case for the other remaining son to find. Garrick um, Heinick, his well, first up, his, his mother originally committed suicide on Mother's Day as a comment to the boys for you know not feeling loved enough. Oh my God! Um, Gary ended, yeah, Gary ended up running a church which um, made him a lot of money, quite rich as well, and his congregation was made up of people who weren't really accepted at other churches, people with mental disabilities or 
drug problems or he just didn't fit in with normal society, he wouldn't be accepted at normal churches. So uh, he'd, he'd um, scour mental homes for young women who were quite vulnerable. And over time, one time he had, I think, believe he had five women in his basement. He'd mainly be torturing these ladies and also by, by keeping them in a pit and often putting them in a pit with water where they'd stay for hours and uh, using electric cables to shock them. Uh, he'd be feeding them dog food and when one woman died, he ended up you know, feeding the surviving women you know, the remains of the, her body. Oof. Um, and this is in, a, in Philadelphia, so this is a, one of the most impoverished parts of the um, United States. And uh, it's also one of the early cases of people being held captive, especially on such a large scale. Mm. An interesting point, too, is that he got sentenced to death, and when he was being put to death, activists who generally turn up to executions uh, were noticed, you know, they weren't noticeably absent from his particular one. So even the, the, those who, you know, uh, want the death punished penalty abolished would uh, didn't even bother turning up. Yeah, yeah, that's how. Okay. Yeah, that's how cut and dry the evilness of this dude was. That's scary that he had five people in the basement. That's just, and then like you say, you know, it's like a, it's like a punchline almost. I know you think it's, oh, I know you say it's impoverished uh, Philadelphia, but it's still it's like a major American city. And mm. this, this dude's got these five girls in his basement. It, it, again, another parallel to the Ariel Castro case, you know, where it's like. This was just going on in some neighborhood somewhere that no one, you know, people didn't seem to notice or care. It's scary. Yeah, and people could disappear quite easily, and they didn't make much of a mention about it. Um, it seemed to just be something that happened all the time, and people come and go from each other's life in a you know, very transient way. Hmm. And, yeah, it seems quite sad that you know, people can go missing for sometimes weeks or months or years, and... People aren't even aware of their disappearance. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty spooky. But all the most of the people who are victims, uh, that seems to be a one recurring theme that there are not necessarily transients, but certainly people that could that could easily disappear and uh, not raise a fuss. What I thought was interesting, I uh, yeah. I kind of alluded to this earlier. I noticed this. I was going over the notes again tonight or today before I sat down to talk to you. And one thing that stood out to me in a horrifying way is. You look at the difference, how they handled these girls in Cleveland, how the fallout was there uh, this last couple of years. This this Heidnick case, I believe, was in the 80s, and uh might have been the 90s. I can't, I don't know off the top of my head. but the, 87. 87, okay. 87, yeah, 87. Well, the, the, the point you make in the book is that that these poor girls who, who escaped, uh, they had a rough time assimilating back into normal society and the, they were known as the Heidnik girls and people would call out Alpo yeah. to them because the, the, that's what this sicko fed them in the basement. It's like, what's wrong yeah. with what? That's so heartbreaking that people, that they're, be, they're being teased on the streets for, for being victims of this lunatic. It's uh, sad. Yeah. Alpo's a dog food. I didn't know what that was when I was writing. Um, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Where they, the particularly... It was you know, very similar in style. When they released, these girls sort of just got mostly you know, overlooked by society. They sort of sort of fell back into um, society almost where they'd left off. Hmm. Um, whereas 
Well, Cleveland was quite different, and I think it's probably going to point more to some of the future of what's coming, is um, the media sensation that surrounded that case was um, quite amazing. And you so you'll look seeing people who you don't necessarily see on American television and um, and the reaction over the internet, which of course wasn't going to happen in 1987, that uh, seems to be um, growing the, the interest in the cases or sensationalism around the cases as what has been growing. Um, you look at how it uh, became, particularly the, um, the Castro case, it became there was a song made out of the interview um, of the fellow who rescued them. You know, and that same song, the same style of song, was used in a Netflix comedy series called um, The Unbreakable Kimmy Smith, which a series I quite liked. But it was it was about women who'd been held captive in a bunker and are now living in a world 15 years later. Right, not right. Based on reality in any particular way. But um, it's just amazing how that particular story sort of has really permeated the culture and has really created a, a very unique kind of byproduct of, of the whole captivity case. Yeah, it's amazing. You raise a good point. It's kind of, it's, it's uh, funny in a weird way that, you know, your book, what, your book came out right about as this case broke, right? I mean, uh, obviously you had no idea. That, Correct. So, yeah, because it's not in the book. Because well, the book came just, out when it, um, <laughs> when it all went down. So you had fortuitous timing, yeah. I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. Because uh, this is really kind of a hot, yeah. hot phenomenon in a, in a sad way, but still. The book was just like like finished that morning. Like some small details were made. And I was like, okay, now this can go, um, go to print. And then it was just like by lunchtime I was listening, going, listening to the radio. And I was like, what? Did I just hear that? And then I had to, you know, question people in the room, like, what happened? Did you see that? And then I was like, oh, so, holy, this is, this is amazing. This is happening right, right now. And I couldn't believe it. It was astounding. So. Yeah, that's a weird, uh, we talk about this on the show sometimes, you know, people who are, it's, I know this is not paranormal, but it's like almost like the universe was winking at you, David. Where it was like, oh yeah, nice job on the book. Here, <laughs> here's, here's, you know, here's here's God's way of letting you know he's he's got a, got an eye on your work. You know, it's creepy uh, in, in yeah. a fun way. Okay, so that's Gary Heidnick. Uh, the next case that stood out to me uh, for unique reasons is the uh, Mark Dutro, and this is in Belgium. And what was interesting here, as you point out, there was a huge uh, political mess fallout following uh, his crimes and everything because he essentially kind of skated by the system and managed to keep uh, keep up his, his crimes without anyone picking up on it, even though they should have. And, and in turn, uh, people were very upset yeah. about how it all unfolded. I guess just talk a little bit about the, the sort of political fallout that, that arose following uh, the revelations of what Mark Dutro was up to and, and, you know, and what he was up to, uh, fill people in on that. So Mark Dutroux had been in prison already for uh, raping five young girls, uh, all with his wife then, Michelle Martin. He only had to spend a few years in prison, and then he was back out, and he was committing um, crimes again. So he had six young girls, uh, teenage girls, kidnapped and held in various properties that he owned around Belgium. The police 
were alerted that there was something wrong with Marky Trow, but they didn't um, they didn't really follow up on it enough. The police officers went to one of his apartments once, and an electrician or a locksmith said he could hear young girls crying, and that he was dismissed and said, "I was kids out on the streets by the police officers." And when this case broke, that four girls had died and uh, two had just been released, uh, released um, very publicly, uh, taken home and reintroduced to their family in front of the media, mm-hmm. caused such a storm in Belgium that it almost overthrew the government. There was a uh, riot on, uh, not a riot, but a march on the streets called the White March, and where uh, firefighters would go and hose down the Capitol building to, uh, as a signifier of washing away corruption while he was being held. Uh-huh. He started to tell stories of that he he wasn't alone in his crime. And he certainly wasn't because there's was many other people who were involved in kidnapping. One of them died along the way, uh, one of his victims too. And they, but he said there was a, a great pedophile network working in Belgium that went through the police, went through parliament, went through high-level officials. And this really stirred up controversy in Belgium and it became debatable whether he was telling the truth. By the time he got to court and his court case was done, which was eight years later, um, they said there was no evidence of a pedophile network, but, uh, but because he said he'd supplied so many uh, officials and the police were so inadequate at you know, catching him. You know, there's still doubt in Belgium's mind whether he was actually leading on to something, telling the truth. Right, so right. It's, um, that's, that one's up to people to uh, to figure out for themselves which they what they believe in that case. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's like fuel for the conspiracy theorists that because there are the theories yeah, uh, um, that sort of thing goes on here in America. So it's like, um, if it's not true, I'm yeah. sure that's kind of where he heard the whole idea. Or it's sort of like an urban legend in general, or more maybe it's true. Who knows? Uh, that there's this sort of pedophilia ring amongst the higher Yeah. Urbans. And there's the fear, like, how long, how was he able to get away with doing it for so long? His mother had even gone to the police and said um, he's holding... No, she wrote a letter to the police and said he's holding girls captive in his basement and the police just ignored them. And the police also had videotapes um, of the girls being abused and they didn't watch them. They said they didn't have a, um, a VCR player at the time. So, so people, you know, this is awfully convenient to a lot of people that, that they happen to miss um, such you know, compelling evidence that took them so long to work out the case. And even Mark Dutro escaped from um, the police van while being transferred from court, he took one of the officers' guns. They had 5,000 people out looking, 5,000 police officers out looking for him, and it was only a forest ranger who found him because Mark Dutro had managed to get his car bogged in on a forest road. <laughs> oh, my God. Jeez. Yeah, that's another one of the horrifying uh, cases. We, I, unfortunately, we started out with some of the more... Uh, well, they're all horrifying, I guess. <laughs> I was trying to see if there was a silver lining case coming up, but really there aren't. They're all pretty bad. But 
Yeah, we've kind of started out with the more uh, salacious ones. Another interesting case that really stood out to me, especially because I went up, I went to school up there at Syracuse. Uh, this happened in Syracuse, New York, around the time when I was in Syracuse. Scary as it sounds. And this is John Jamelsk, and what he's doing is he's preying on these, as again, again transient type folks, and, and, and kidnapping women. And holding them captive for various lengths of time. What was really interesting and really unique about this case, I thought, was that he would kidnap these girls, and as I said, keep them for various lengths of time, but then let them go. Just let them go. And this happened over and over and over again. And at certain times, a couple of them, or at least one of them, spoke out, went to the police, tried to uh, alert folks to what this guy was up to. And it never went anywhere until finally he ends up getting caught and charged for all this stuff. But it's amazing that he just keeps doing this over and over again, kidnapping these girls, keeping them for a while, letting them go. And it's just stunning because it, it, it speaks to almost in a way the we talked about the control aspect of all this. And it's like he doesn't seem to have that hang up in a way. I would, I, I would be too guilderin like he talked about earlier with the Colleen Stan case. The guy brings her to see her parents, then afterwards he's like, oh, maybe I let on too much. This guy has the opposite feeling. He's just letting them go willy-nilly with no seem to concern for what might become of them going back into society. So what, what do you think was going on there? Yeah, um, John Jamelski, he was a, a hoarder. So collecting humans was sort of his, you know, his trophy piece of all his holding. He had 13,000 beer bottles and all other type of rubbish around the yard. He'd go around picking things up off the road and through scrap heaps and um, lived in, you know, a pretty unpleasant-looking house, but not knowing... From the outside, you wouldn't realise he was actually worth several million dollars. Oh, wow. And he he built his um, his dungeon, and he just hired contractors and just brought them in and said, you know, build me a dungeon. I want a, somewhere to store my things. And But they didn't realise that the things that he was storing were uh, humans. And one interesting thing about Jamalski is that everyone, he collected five women, and they were all from different races, uh, Native American, uh, uh, Latino, Vietnamese lady, uh, and Caucasian, and a an, uh, young African-American girl. So, And each one of these he actually considered to be his friend, and so that's how and that's how he he lived his life with them for a little while until he did release them, and he he would often just drop them off at home, and then he you know over the next couple of months would drive past, and they did start getting reported to the police. After the first two young girls didn't report him to the police, but then when the women were women did report him to the police, they were told, oh that type of thing doesn't happen around here. And they were just ignored. And so it would, the whole cycle would start again. He'd go cruising the streets and he'd bring home another young lady until, um, one managed to escape and he was tracked down. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, refresh my memory. How long generally would he keep these girls before he let them go? It all depends. He kept, um, one lady for about three years. <laughs> the first victim he kept for two years. Um, another woman he kept only for four months. With his final victim, he 
um, really thought they were having a relationship. And I think she was 16 at the time. And she would, man, you know, she would really put on the friendship element and was quite cunning in the way to, you know, wanting to go out and be his friend and go out of the, the bunker and do things. And that's how um, they got found out. He'd take her to karaoke and take her shopping because he thought that actually thought she was in a relationship and she knew that if she waited long enough, she'd find a way out. Yeah. And she did. She said she was calling and you know, wanted to know some church times. So she... uh called up her sister and told her what was happening, where they were at, and then the police were alerted. Crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, remarkable. Kind of goes back to the Philadelphia story, too, in a way. Like I said, uh, these are happening in major cities uh, that people manage to get away with it. It's scary. So, yeah, it's like, you know, your next-door neighbor. Um, that's the fear is the next-door neighbor could be doing something, and you have no idea. And most people, when you see them on television interviews have no idea that, uh, that what was going on in the street it's always you known they were such a quiet quiet person or they were just seen normal a bit unusual but we didn't think that bad right um, so spooky spooky keep an eye on your neighbor folks uh, <laughs> and, and speaking of of sort of getting away with things this next case Dude, this is going to be an inside joke, uh, David, but uh, this is kind of a shout-out to my friend uh, Lobo because we had a long argument about uh, life sentences in, in Sweden, and this kind of has, in a way, something to do with that because uh, it's the case of Annapurna Sahu, who was uh, kept in captivity a stunning 25 years by her family in India, and then when she was released or freed, uh, there was no charges filed. Because uh, they thought the officials, I guess, kind of wrote it off that that the, that the family was doing a good thing. Because that's sort of the way the culture is over there. And even if they had been charged, the punishments would have been minimal at best. Uh, a stunning lack of accountability for 25-year captivity. I guess enlighten me a little bit more to sort of how all that went down in the sense that these folks, the family who kept Annapurna Sahu essentially trapped on their property for 25 years, you know, yeah, managed to not even get punished. like an, out, an outhouse in the yeah. backyard. And they put her there because um, often in some parts of India, women don't have a, a great deal of rights. And when she, she denied um, an arranged marriage, that was a day that the family decided that she was insane and they went to doctors to try and get approved that she was insane and they went to witch doctors and they couldn't get the um, get the outcome they wanted. So when they didn't get that, they then locked her in the outhouse. So that would have been about 1980 they locked her in the outhouse and she wasn't released until 2005. Um, and some people obviously knew about it because it was a neighbour or who went to the police and alerted them. But the Sahu family were also incredibly um, wealthy owners of a flour mill in India. So um, they weren't really they weren't punished at all. They were really quite high up in the area. The punishment for keeping her held captive uh, for 25 years would have only been one month in prison, <laughs> because that's un un that's the Indian Penal Code states under three four one that. Punishment for wrongful restraints. Whoever wrongly restrains a person shall be punished with a simple imprisonment for a term of which may be extended to one month. 
the police decided not to press charges. That's insane. And, uh, the, police, the police actually said, well, what else do you want us to do? Because if it wasn't for them locking her up, she could have run away. She could have been raped. She could have been murdered. Her life could have been much worse. So, yeah, it's quite, quite, that's quite sad. Particularly the fate, fate of, um, you know, often hear cases of many women in different countries who are just terribly abused just through normal society. Uh, society seems to just overlook their abuse and, 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 you know, takes it as a given. Um, it's kind of harder for us to imagine, um, but yeah, so we hear no cases in Africa where you know two hundred girls go missing. You know, right, right, exactly. In, I I don't even want to. Well, I have to ask. I guess I don't even want to go there, but I have to ask. If yeah, <laughs> let's say a real twisted individual was like listening to this and they're like, "Well, forget it, man. I'm going to India." Like if someone just went over and did that. Let's say, you know, a Gary Heidnick or a Mark Detroit. Yeah learns of this information, of this uh, stunning lack of accountability over in India for this stuff, could could some maniac like that go over to India and just do this and they would end up just serving a month in prison if they were caught? Yeah, I don't know what if they've made reforms to the law or what international law would dictate, um, yeah. depending on where they've come from. Um, I imagine they'd, be, they'd probably see it quite different from foreigners. That's true, yeah. Yeah. Um, because these people, these people had um, were quite had you know, quite high social standing, so they'd be the least members of the society, and uh, and they were upset with the um, police officers for making the arrest, but still praising them at the same time. Um, so because of the shame that's brought the family, um, so I, to. I don't know. It'd be, I'd hope that people, you know, anyone who is, who, you know, is caught doing such a crime would be punished. So, I mean, I know there's a number of international laws. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. It's, that, that would, you know, for different for different types of crime, you mm. know, if you commit them while on holidays, you yeah, yeah, still um, still held held responsible for them. So, I don't know. It hasn't been done, and um, hopefully, it ha- hopefully, it isn't done either. So. Right, right, yeah. So if there's any Gary Heidnick type listening right now in like Cleveland or something that wants to go and do this, it's not a good idea because that's true. If, if yeah, uh, some American dude was I caught doing it, they'd probably string him up in the streets. So yeah, I haven't heard of anyone going traveling a long distance to do it uh, to hold someone captive. It tends to be more around their around their sort of you know their own lifestyle or their their social network or um, you know their their part of the world. It's um so the 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 people who they hold hold captives are sort of brought into their world. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they know that's where their base is. Um, I'm sure people tourists often you know do commit crimes in, in um real while overseas. So you know how long you can stay overseas for? I don't know. Yeah. Now. Uh, you alluded to this case earlier, and I thought this was interesting uh, because it stood out to me. This Tanya Koch, it's a lot like, well, it's a, it's a little less cut and dry than the Natasha Ryan case. But the Natasha Ryan case, it was a, it was a woman who essentially kind of went off the grid uh, in Australia. And then a dude was accused of uh, killing her, but it turns out she had just kind of gone off the grid and, and become more or less... Uh, agoraphobic almost, where she didn't even want to leave the house or anything. She kind of trapped herself in. But this, yeah. this, this Tanya Koch story is interesting 
It's an American story. It really sounds more like a Lolita situation, but then after it all came out, it feels like she was kind of trying to save face in a way by saying that she was a, a kidnapped victim or a, a captive. So this, it's a very, I guess the point yeah. I'm trying to make, it's a very murky. I guess talk about the murky nature of the Tanya Koch case. Well, yeah, the thing that when Tanya Cash was um, allegedly kidnapped, uh, essentially ran away to uh, Paul Hose's house, who was 33 at the time, I believe, and stayed there for 10 years. But um, she was sort of a girl that was going off the rails. Her parents had had enough, and she was about to be put into state care. Um, the parent, uh, parents didn't want her to live with her anymore. So it seems like she sort of, um, you know, wanted to pretend she's a bit more mature than she was and started a relationship with um someone who was, you know, preying on preying on her and who who worked at the school. So that's what he got charged for, having um a relationship with an underage girl. And that's what went to court. Right. But the the charges of being held captive um or kidnapping were never brought to court. But then afterwards, you put to the media and to other places, um, media and book sales, and that's what she would present, is that she was held captive that time. But um, there was down all through the t- um, town of McKeesport, and um, that this isn't what occurred, you know, that she could have left at any time and that she chose to stay. So obviously, you know, you know, you have to make of it what you will. You know, it does seem like a you know a girl that had a um, had a relationship with an older fellow, and then you know, and then it falls apart. Um, and yeah, it's just a very complex story. Right, right, um, yeah. It's very interesting. It, to, it you know to add more fuel to the weirdness of it. You know, I, I believe it's her father. It may have been a stepfather, but I know it was a father figure. At one point, said you know, kind of wrote off the whole idea that she was held captive, and, and said he wanted to hear this guy's side of the story, and said you know, oh, she was a young woman, yeah. and that's kind of what what they do, folks, or something like that. Yeah, he he said that um, he was suspicious about how it all went down as well. It sort of would cause the you know the end of their relationship. Uh, it doesn't seem like they ever repaired their relationship after that after he made that comment. Um, so, uh, Paul Hose, who still in prison, um, said that he would like to write his own book. And I believe there's talk about his son um, was talking about writing a book as well. That this, um, you know, the son was sleeping in the room of the house while Tanya Cash was there. And um, the house is an old wooden rust belt home. And these are some noisy places. You know, you know, any walking around, they would have been able to hear it throughout the house. Yeah. So to have it that no one knew, knew she was up there. And then, you know, she had the internet. She had a cell phone. She had, um, she could go out towards the end. She could go out and she was eventually introduced to the parents and then brought into the house and said, this is my partner. She's coming to live with us. Right. And um so she was when she came out of captivity she had um bleached blonde hair, manicured nails, very nice clothes, starkly different to how uh you know any other captives have come out of uh, their captivity. Yeah, it's interesting and, too. She also at one point I think I think kinda of what led to a lot of the unraveling of this, I believe, uh was didn't she she was bragging 
to somebody and said, if you look on the Missing Children website, you'll see my picture or something like that. It wasn't like, oh, help me. Yeah. It was like, aren't I cool? I'm, I'm a missing child. It was really weird. Yeah, and there was also in the book that she wrote, there was, said there was, she was a, the milk carton kid and she was on 400 million milk cartons. And I couldn't find any evidence that it actually occurred, but, um, there doesn't seem to be any milk cartons in existence out of the 400 million. So that was an interesting point. Um, so you think it's quite convoluted that you have to, you know, it sounds like, you know, mistakes are made by everyone in that case. Of everyone involved, and um, of course, you know, predators who work with children obviously need to be watched, and um, for people who are vulnerable and who, um, you know, who have no other opportunity. And uh, he sounds like he became her safe haven. Yeah. After the police got here, see, the girl Amanda told the police, "I ain't just the only ones. It's some more girls up in that house." So they went up there you know 30 40 deep and when they came out was just astonishing because i thought they were gonna come up with nothing because we see this dude every day right. i barbecue with, with this dude we eat ribs and, and whatnot and listen to salsa music you see i'm coming from yeah. and you had no indication that there was not anything hey bro not a clue that that girl w was in that house or anybody else was in there against their will you're listening to banal of america audio because how he is is I, he just comes out to his backyard, plays with the dogs, tinker with his cars and motorcycles, goes back in the house. So he's somebody that you look and you look away because he's not doing nothing but the, the average stuff. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Nothing exciting about him. Well, until the day. Another interesting case that stood out to me because it's really one of the more unique cases of the 28. I mean, they're all sort of unique in their own sense, but this one was stood out from all of them. Because this is sort of a rare male-on-male case, uh, adult male-on-male, not something where someone's taking advantage of a child. Uh, we're too, mm. it, 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 this is the Dustin LaFortune case. I guess, tell me more about this case, because I'm still puzzled by this one. You know, we talk about the Tanya Koch case. I guess the, the suspicion, in a lot of ways, is was there like a romantic element involved here between Dustin LaFortune and his captor? Or, or what was the, what was the bond that kept him in captivity with this guy? Because it wasn't, he wasn't necessarily chained up like some of these other victims. It was a, it was a mental bondage in a way. Talk about the Dustin LaFortune case. Enlighten me to what, to what went down with that one. That one takes place in Canada. So as I said, we're spanning the globe here with these stories. Yeah. Um, Dustin LaFortune and Dustin Paxton, uh, couldn't have been more different. Dustin the Fortunate come from you know, a clean living family that didn't watch television or they didn't have sugar, whereas Dustin Paxton was someone who had uh, been in trouble and put into state care since the age of 12. And these two had become friends a few years earlier and then decided they were going to move to Regina in Canada and start their own business, uh, like a moving business. And they're... The household there became sort of, you know, the party household with lots of drinking and there's things like there's a lot of um, methamphetamine that's going on as well. Right. That's so, the other part I want to ask you about because the people – sorry to jump hmm. in, but the, there's two okay. – you know, there's two schools of thought here, as I said. I forgot about that other element where it's like people people wonder how this went down. It's like was there a romantic element or some kind of drugs – was there drugs involved? So that now you're kind of – Cluing me in, maybe maybe it was more drug related, perhaps. But but go on, I'm sorry. Well, it could have 
Yeah, it could have been drug-related. I couldn't, myself, I couldn't work out the sexual nature of the case because it, um, Justin LaFortune was horribly beaten. He went, they found him, he looked nothing like the young man that he went in as, um, he had many broken ribs, his eye sockets were broken, his lips had been beaten off, and, um, his, his legs had been whipped so many times that flesh was starting to cay on them and he was dumped in front of the hospital um, and it wasn't expected that he would survive. And part of the way he would avoid getting beatings was to perform sexual favours on Dustin Paxman and that was one of the main charges that Paxman got was that he um, had aggravated uh, sexual assault. Um, so he wasn't found guilty of unlawful confinement, and um, even though he seemed to have an ultimate control over La Fortune, um, because the judge said that they need to understand why why he didn't leave, why Dustin La Fortune didn't leave, that there is a difference between domination and confinement, and La Fortune said that he didn't realise how he was being manipulated and. Uh, seemed like a very gentle person, and in the end, he didn't want to be seen as though he was a sissy because um, Paxton was, a, you know, a, a fellow that was actually much smaller than him, but a lot more aggressive. Mm. So there's a large sexual element. This um, raises another interesting point about most cases when you're released, you hear that there are females being released, and. My theory on that is the reason you don't hear of um, more males being released, is in, particularly if things are of a sexual nature, males don't tend to have the physicality to stand up to sustain sexual abuse the way females do. Um, because particularly, say, if the um, sort of much raping the way a man gets raped is quite different, mm. which uh, anally would lead to... Uh, problems like with septicemia, uh, with the blood being poisoned through the tearing of the bowels. And and so I think that it's much more difficult for males to survive um, being held captive. Oh, God. And that's why we have a lot more female... female um, the males would just die. I think the males would just die earlier and they, they wouldn't be held for an extended period of time. Oh, that's horrifying because the, 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 the implication there then is that, that it's hap- that it is happening, that that has happened. So, you know. Yeah, oh, but God. It, it probably, it's probably more, more likely to come out, you know, it probably wouldn't last as long or wouldn't last for years. It would just last maybe for a few weeks and it would just be, um, you know. Oh my God, yeah. It's, it's, so if there's yeah, like a, so if this is happening, there's probably some dude that's got like a whole bunch of bodies in his backyard and one unfortunate dude still hanging on in the basement right now. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. scary. That's my theory on it. So he just, it's still mind-boggling in a way though, the case, because it's, he did have the opportunity to leave and just, you just want, it's a mental domination. It's bizarre. It really is, uh, it's really bizarre that he wouldn't just fight back. Uh, against this guy who was beating on him, he, he goes against human yeah, nature it, almost. Yeah, it seems like like you know this ultimate control, um, and just not wanting to be seen as though he was weak. Um, and he just didn't seem to. I think I think the manipulation happened over a long period of time. Mm. So it's just a, abuse as it's um, 
as it's as it's um you know, the abuse is increasing often I guess it's like a domestic violence situation and yeah. we start off you know with small abuses which get larger and larger then you would often wonder, you know, before she was murdered, why didn't this woman leave? And you go, Well, you know, things just aren't you know, always cut and dry because there's um, you know, there's financial just had financial involvement with each other as well. So I don't know whether they're in a relationship or whether he wanted to be in um Dustin Paxton wanted to be in a relationship with a fortune, um, but didn't know how to express it. Yeah, but he did take on a in one of his police interviews that he always as many people do, um, who hold people is that they say, No, I was caring for him. He didn't know how to look after himself or um I had to be responsible for him and he kept doing these things to himself and if I wasn't there it would have ended up much worse. Mm. I was so, gonna ask you, yeah, what is what is this guy's justification, this Dustin Paxton? What's his justification for doing this? That that this guy was incompetent and he was <laughs> he was doing it to himself? Yeah. Jesus. He was too naive to be able to look after himself properly, so I needed to do it and this is you know and he did it he was doing this you know, he was you know, he was asking for it, or he was doing it to himself. So, oh, yeah, it's quite horrific. Um, uh, but he made for his life back together, and um, and and hopefully, uh, hopefully, he does very well for himself. He seems like a very seems like a very nice person. Um, Dustin the Fortune. So, I hope the best for him. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I should, well, yeah, I guess I'll mention it. There's a horror, if you, if you Google Dustin LaFortune, folks, there's a horrifying picture of, uh, of what he looked like when they found him. And it's just, you, you, if you want to really understand the, the sheer horrifying aspect of this case, just Google Dustin LaFortune, uh, and you'll see the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. You need a strong stomach for that picture. That's quite horrific. Yeah, absolutely, folks. Uh, fair warning. Don't, don't go unless you want to see this, because it's not, not something for the faint of heart. Mm. Now another case. Now prepare yourself because this one's going to be is going to be a bit complex. But it's uh, it's in a way it was funny because I you know I'm reading the book. This is the Linda Weston case. Originally, she she's left in charge of her. Her mother dies. I think the father's out of the picture. And this is like in Philadelphia. I don't know what, why Philadelphia seems to draw these <laughs> these crimes, but. So at the age of 19, she's left in charge of this family uh, and just just starts abusing them and doing horrible things to her younger siblings. And along the way, they keep someone captive in like a cupboard for, for years. And then she ends up going to jail for this. She gets out and then goes on this insane spree of kidnappings and, and human trafficking in a way. And just horrifying, horrifying things. And as I'm reading the book, you know, she's like one of the first cases in the book. Then she's also one of the last cases in the book. And, and you know, I'm reading it and I'm like, wait a minute, is this, I thought I read about Alinda Weston already. You know, and I flip back and it's the same lady. It's really mind-blowing, uh, this case, because yeah. this woman has just a string of insane acts. Multiple victims, multiple states, multiple years, uh... You know, if somebody wants to win an Academy Award, play this woman in a movie. You almost certainly will, because uh, what a complex, bizarre individual. Tell me about, or tell the folks at home a little bit, about Linda Weston and this strange case. Yeah, like this, uh, almost over 30 years, um, Linda Weston was, you know, set free across 
of Philadelphia. And she, yeah, she killed um, Bernardo Ramos, which is almost a story almost forgotten about. She locked him in a cupboard until he eventually died. They dumped him in a convent, a disused convent in the streets of Philadelphia. And she already had four children. She went up to prison, but Evan was released a few years later. And when she, she was, she, all her, you know, all the, the signs were there earlier on about what would come later. They, um, she would drug her siblings so that they wouldn't cause trouble. But then she'd also send, send her younger siblings and cousins, some as young as 11, out to prostitute in order to make her money. The house was racked with incest from a, um, a very young age. And part of that was because Linda Weston wanted to get her siblings impregnated so that she could collect more social security uh, welfare payments from the government. Right, right. And that, and um, so that sort of set her up for later in life. As the more children she had, the more payments she could get. She also preyed on people with disability. So there was quite a number of them, and to avoid detection, she'd move from state to state, and she'd pick up co-conspirators along the way. That have, you know, she'd pick the disabled person up, she'd look after them. She often hung around outside you know, hospitals and looked for people who were, who were, you know, being released uh, for psychiatric care, and she would um, befriend them on the way out and say, "We've got a place where you can come stay." And through this, she could collect people's Social Security payments, right? And right. so for her, it was the, the more the better. And this—it's um, really untold about how many um, victims she actually had. But she tends to be probably the worst um, in the sheer size uh, of her crime. And uh, probably she, um, someone who seems, you know, of low IQ, um, mentally ill. She seemed to be, uh, be very, very smart about it and knew exactly how to manipulate people uh, and to get people's trust yeah. and um, to get them to hand over anything they wanted. She also um, held her, held her, you know, her children, one, her son Joseph Macintosh, in the basement for over a year until he managed to escape. Um, and she left. Um, there's two women who died. The police didn't recognise them as murders. They just seemed like people who had sort of decayed under their own conditions, you know, natural causes. Right. When um, when their bodies were found, one lady almost had no toes left and they'd popped up in front of the television with um, piles of pills to make it look like she'd sort of wasted away and overdosed on her own doing. And another lady fell through, you know, fell through an attic ceiling and she was... Then locked in a cupboard until she eventually died on the on the laundry floor, and again just given you know, a pile of pills sat next to her, and you know, and the police were like, okay, she just died of natural causes. Let's not into it. Let's not look into it too much. And then it just just moved state, and then just moved state, and then um, continued kidnapping people along the way, and getting her other than her siblings to help with the kidnapping and torturing. Uh, and yeah, this case is still going too, so you probably want to look forward to, and I'll look out for um, when this case goes ahead. It's meant to be going ahead sometime this year, but it could be quite a while off, I would suspect. She has avoided the death penalty, but um, recently there was a, a payout, um, a civil case um, done against her, which was where 
of the um, people who were kidnapped were to be paid out forty-four, not forty-five million dollars. Oh my God! So it's, yeah, it's unlikely they'll ever they'll ever see the money. Yeah, but yeah. It was a matter of just trying to hold them accountable. Uh, and yeah, the, the case will come up. Uh, it'll be a federal. It's a federal indictment, and it should be interesting to see see what Linda Ann Weston actually receives from it. Um, if she's had the death penalty uh, revoked, or we won't be happening. So, and also the first person to be federally indicted under the Matthew Shepard and James Bird Hate Crime Prevention Act as well. So it'll be interesting to see the test case to see how that plays out. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable. So there's a good chance then, because I was going to say, it's remarkable that folks don't know about Linda Weston yet. Given the way the media is, you would think this case would be all over the place. So there's a good chance once this kind of uh, heats up some more and, and goes to trial that everybody in America is going to hear about the Linda Weston case uh, then. Yeah, there's just the scope of it. Um, it's quite amazing that it isn't as well known um, that considering the scope of it over 30 years, it's, it's quite, you know, it seems like it should be bigger than it is, but it's sort of just sort of, as some cases do, they fade away. There was also one just after the Cleveland um, girls were released where four um, people were found in Texas, Austin, Texas, and um, they were found locked in a garage and like Linda Weston, they were, you know, being used for their social security benefits and there's four men, but there's also other, um, four other women in the house over time. And that case sort of broke and then, um, just a few months after Cleveland, but then it just sort of petered away again quite quickly. Um, so it's amazing. Some cases catch our attention, some cases don't. And we don't find out what happens in the end, a lot of them. Right. It could say a lot about the way the media is here in America that uh, one of the big reasons I think that the that the Cleveland case was so huge was that it was a uh, that it was a young white girl that went missing because these kind of things may oh, okay. happen more often in in these uh, urban areas and and it doesn't become news as much. Yeah, well, um, I'm not quite sure how it all works over there. I guess like yeah, Linda Weston were you no, know, no one there was white. Um, and neither was the, the Austin, Texas one. So, and I even, I guess, the, you know, to the, the, I can't remember the name of the fellow that found the Cleveland girls, you know, said when a pretty young girl runs into a black man's arms, you know, something's wrong. Um, which the, they made that, the song out of. Um, so, yeah, inter- interesting though. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make of that one because I, you know, I bit of a different culture over here. So, right, um, right. So, yeah, and also we haven't had a real um, case like this in Australia either. So, not yet, not that we're aware of. I knew that um, Natasha Ryan, who who turned out not to, um, who, you know, right, right, self-imposed. She's another one. Interesting. Yeah. So Australia hasn't had a, an Ariel Castro type case yet. So. Yeah. No, not at all. Now, the, the last case I have here from the cherry-picked ones, and then we'll probably just kind of chat a little bit more about the phenomenon in general, is uh, Li Hao, and that's in China. And what I found really – we talk about sort of the cultural differences here uh, with these cases. What I thought was really interesting uh, is that he has a series of girls in his captivity, and at some point along the way – 
he makes the, I don't recall if it's three or four girls, but he makes the remaining girls kill one of the other girls. I think perhaps to implicate them in the crime or just to further advance his control over them. But then the remarkable part culturally is that after it all goes down and he's captured and he goes on trial and everything, even though they were given reduced sentences or maybe even no sentences at all, the other victims still face charges for killing the fellow victim, despite the fact that they were forced to do it by Lee Howe during their captivity. It's really like, wow, what a country, man. What a, what a way to live, uh, that, that you're still, you're still charged with that, despite the circumstances. So I guess talk a little bit about that weird, uh, cultural aspect of it. Yeah, it's, it is quite strange. Um, many of them spent a few months in prison, um, because, under Chinese law, it said that they uh, they you know, they participated in the murders of other women who were held captive, and they were murdered as a sign of to show favorite you know to get favoritism from Lee Howe. So they'd often fight about who would have sex with him, and um, and then you know, and then punish the other you know, punish the weaker woman. Um, and he was um, so. But one of the, the disturbing things about that case was the women then had to live in a bunker that was um, underneath their, their building, dug out of dirt. But he into the floor, he that's where he put the bodies and left them in the corner. So they, there's two bodies rotting in the basement while the other women were living in there. And he dragged the um, other women up and made them perform uh, sex acts on the internet. And that was a way of, you know, in the, him getting income. And yeah, he's, um, Lee Howe has now been, uh, he's now been put to death. I believe he was spent through, uh, uh, executed by firing squad. Yeah, it's, that was very strange. Um, culturally it's very difficult to understand. And, um, the victims of it were also, you know, imprisoned for, you know, something that they really had no choice of enduring. It doesn't appear that, um, China has you know, much sympathy for uh, prostitutes. They tended to be the women tended to um, come from karaoke bars and uh, willing to uh, come back to his premises to involve themselves in sex acts and get paid for it. So I think that may have influenced the decision that you know these weren't you know, pure women and um, therefore you know didn't need to be treated with any great amount of respect. Yeah, it's very bizarre, um, but it's just, I guess it's the way that China decided to work the case. Yeah. I I find it difficult understanding it myself. Yeah, it's strange. Uh, It really is uh, strange. And they, yeah, they also, um, they had no, the women weren't also allowed to have any legal representation while they were, while they were on trial as well. So it doesn't seem like, you know, they got, they really got anything out of it. They got you know, no no great amount of assistance at all, and in, and I wouldn't imagine that you know, uh, you know, going back into society, but you know, there wasn't going to be much you know, aftercare. There tends to be a bit coming out of China. I've come across a few cases that of people held captive in China. The one that Li Hao holding. Um, sex slaves in a, in a um, dugout basin, and that's just completely rare. That completely blew the country away. But um, there are other cases that are coming out where, uh, in China, family members have been holding 
um, disabled relatives in uh, cages or cells for or by chains for um, you know number of years or decades, and particularly in urban areas, um, urban areas or out in them, out in the um, the mountain areas, you know where uh, care is not really available for uh, people with mental illness or or, um, or other type of illnesses, so. They're just sort of left for the family to uh, look after them and having no idea. But there's, there's several cases that come out over the last few years where that has been occurring. Weird. Weird. You know, again, that goes to the whole idea that we've seen throughout these cases and stuff that uh, a lot of times it seems to be like a family member doing it to a weaker member of the family. You know, a parent doing it. Mm. Again, I, I, like I said, uh, we, we've kind of hit all the cherry-picked cases, and uh, maybe we can dive sort of into sort of the more nebulous nature of all this or maybe the, the deeper aspect of it. Mm. I guess, what do you think? I don't know. It just it boggles my mind. It's hard to get into the mind of these people, first of all. It's really hard to understand mm. the motivation. But, I mean, what do you make of the aspect of the phenomenon where it's parents who just keep their child captive like that because it happens you know throughout the book yeah there's um i think i think there's just a lot of family shame that, that goes on david bisson's parents mother kept him you know, hidden away because she was a child that she never really wanted so she kept him hidden away there's one from Italy, there's two from Italy actually, and um, they were they were both the same thing. Where people who had disabilities were held captive by their family and locked away. There's either it's generally through disability of not being able to understand how to cope with it, or believing it shows a family shame, or there tend to be the more perverse as incest aspects, such as um, the Joseph Fritzl case where he held his daughter in a um, purpose-built dungeon for 24 years. And that insidious nature, sort of psychopathic nature of just wanting absolute control over someone and having a secret that's so big that that um, you know that no one else can find out about it, no one else can control what's going on. Hmm. Um, it's troubling. It's very weird. You wonder what goes into the minds of these people. Uh, you know something, David? I don't know about you, but I... I can barely keep my own life together. Talk about trying to have a double life. Like, I don't know how these, they're, they're remarkably evil, industrious people, which I think is, is, is kind of, that's like the scariest part. It's not like there's some dude who picks up a hooker and kills her. Well, obviously that person's evil. This is someone who takes the time to build a dungeon and then keep them captive or try to keep people captive as the case, uh, there's a case from the book in Germany where, uh, this guy, Builds an elaborate sort of S and M dungeon, uh, sort of layout, if you oh. will, yeah, and, and and tries to kidnap the girl, but then she escapes like immediately. But but the point is, um, you know, it's it's it, it's crazy the amount of work, time, effort, thought that these people put into these scenarios. Yeah, yeah some and years, years going into preparing for it. Particularly in the Russian cases, they spend about four years each just digging their dungeon, and a lot, you know, other cases they spend planning it. Some people they just have a room. But um, just thinking that, you know, they put in years of their life to go, I'm going to hold someone for years. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary that people think that way and sort of not consider, you know, that the other person actually has a life or has an empathy. It's like um, 
No, people who go stalking, I don't understand stalking because how do you find so much time to do something? You know, in, in comparison, stalking would be such a minor crime compared to holding someone captive for years. Um, but even that, that's a, even you know just you know general domestic stalking tends to take over people's lives and they just put all their time and effort into it. And but this is you know this is just extreme, and I guess that's what why it sort of you know. It captures everyone's attention when it does happen, when we find out about it, that someone has actually gone to such an extreme, far beyond what is you know, the comprehension of most people. Mm. I know it's an impossible thing to speculate about, but I'm going to have to ask you anyway, because I've certainly given it yeah. some thought. I mean, I think it's safe to say right now, talking, you and I, that right now there is someone <clears throat> in a situation that is depicted in the book going on right now. There are, there are people being held captive as we speak, is the point I'm trying to make. Certainly not happening often. Certainly not like happening in every city in America. Or mm. I hope not. But, I mean, how, how bad do you think this is? I think it's probably much worse than uh, the public thinks. Well, there's, um, yeah, there tends to be, you know, to, well, I've only looked at it from 1970 onwards. And to now, uh, to you know, 2013, that was 28 major cases, plus there's other smaller ones that didn't make the book. Um, there's, but the time limit, yeah, there could, there's, I definitely think there's, there's, it's still occurring at this stage. And around the world there is someone or a good number of people who are being held and that we just don't know about. And it's only, the rescued ones that we find out about as well. So along the way, there could have been other ones who had been held for 10 years, ended up dying in confinement, and their body in the bunker or whatever was just buried. And we don't hear about those ones. So these are only the cases we know about. So I reckon that I believe that there's you know, many more that have occurred and we'll never hear about. And, um, and there certainly will be more in the future. So... I don't think it's um I don't think it's going away, and it's just going to be interesting to see the way that um, technology is played in it because it seems to be more as it encompasses our life, and also it you know, becomes you know more ingrained in you know, the rescues or the um, the case you were talking about in Germany where he had numbers of cameras set up and um, he was really watching the premises and so he could see outside and he had. Um, wire over his windows and it's quite obvious what was going on but he used technology he bought his um a phone box off ebay and used that to uh hold a woman in so that he could uh impregnate her and and um but you know he forgot to lock the door you know, right at the last moment the last piece he, he forgot to do and she managed to escape so the technology is going to be interesting to see and how you know, internet reacts and we react as people, whether we, you know, it becomes, you know, a comedy show or, you know, we take how, or how seriously we take it. Well, thankfully, it seems like people take it pretty seriously, at least here, more than they did back in the day when they were shouting Alpo at, at the victims. It's ironic in a way or it's yeah. illuminating in a sense. This connects to a previous edition of the program we did with, uh, Leslie Wagner Wilson, who escaped from Jonestown, and she was terrified of telling anyone that she had escaped from Jonestown uh, when she got back to America because the people were ridiculed and they were made fun of uh, for, for being a part of the Jonestown thing. 
So then you hear these stories about victims of the captivity case of of Gary Heidnick, and the same kind of attitude is pervasive there. And almost a decade later, too, it's scary uh, that that people were treated that way back then. Thankfully, it looks like they're they're treated better now. But who knows what happens Mm. in other countries? You know, we talked about the pervasive possible nature of this. You kind of alluded to it when you talked about women who don't have uh, countries that don't have stellar track records for women's rights. I mean, I don't want to sound xenophobic or anything, folks, but like you pointed out with the women going missing in Africa, you can only imagine what kind yeah. of stuff happens in other parts of the country where where women can just be taken captive like like some of the cases in this book, and it's it's perfectly okay. That's really scary. Uh, yeah. Another thing also um, I found quite interesting is that with uh, the people who are released, a lot of them don't actually seek uh, psychiatric help or professional help at all. They just want to ignore all that. Like some of them just want to walk straight back into their lives and be normal and go, look, I had an unpleasant experience. I don't want media around me anymore. Um, I don't want to be um, analysed or used as a subject. And whereas other people who come out... Um, you know, obviously suffer significant trauma and, and their lives are never, you know, they never recover again. So it's just quite interesting the way um, they won't, um, you know, I guess there's such a prevalence of psychology and stuff today that a lot of um, the captives just completely reject all that and just can, um, just, you know, just want to just walk away and also walk away from media attention as well. Mm, yeah. And I'm sure there's also cases, we talked a little bit about, well, we talked about the the Tanya Koch case, and, uh, you know, it, it comes up also in the Colleen Stan case, where it's, you wonder sort of if there's instances where Stockholm Syndrome sort of sets in with these situations. Colleen Stan, she escapes, or she leaves the guy, but still keeps in touch three months over the course of three months. Mm. You know, she doesn't go running to the police and say, I was held in a box under this dude's bed for three years. Like, why? you know, it's amazing. She still contacts him uh, for the three months after mm. she leaves. I guess talk a little bit. We'll, we'll circle back around to the Colleen Stan case. Talk, what, what do you think was going through the – I'm sure she's kind of answered this question, so maybe you'll know, but – you know, what's going through the mind there as she escapes, then then just waits three months and keeps talking to this guy? Clearly, she was very confused. Yeah, and I think it is, you know, confusion about the relationship um, and what, you know, the attachments were. I think with Colleen Stan, too, is when she got went to court, she was, um, because she was used as a sex slave, when she went to court, she was actually told to turn, tone her appearance down. Um, because she was still highly sexualized, because that's all the focus she'd had for such a long time. So, I think, you know, anything that, I mean, I tried, I avoided using the Stockholm Syndrome because, um, because it was just so hard to define what it was, because if you're kidnapped, you're gonna want to, um, do anything you can to survive. If they say, do something or I'll kill you, you'll do it. Um, you saw that with uh, Lee Howe, that we would kill each other in order to survive. If they had to perform sex acts in order not to be beaten or murdered, they would do it. So, and, um, 
So I sort of avoided using Stockholm Syndrome. Though a lot of I said, but in, I read, you know, it often came up during the research, um, but I couldn't find a, a sort of a. You know, it's not in the um, DSM for, um, so I sort of avoided using it for that reason as well, because it could sort of just be one of those things could easily, you know, attributed to many things. Um, and I've read other people saying, you know, um, about domestic things that they had Stockholm Syndrome. And so it was a bit hard to find out where the borders of Stockholm Syndrome was, and that's what I, for, for me, so. Um, so I think, you know, you, if you're in a situation and you need to survive, I think that you'd just do whatever you needed to in order to survive. Um, the relationship, I think, you know, humans... The people who are taken captive have you know, probably got a lot more empathy than they do, you know, than their captors do. So they're probably going to feel something. I don't know. Mm. It's difficult to tell what goes through the mind of someone unless you know you're in that situation. So yeah, exactly. It's I'm sure it's sort of earth-shattering in a way where you're the only person you've known for years and years and years. How you break out of that. You know what I'm saying? It's if you're, if you're if you're that captive, and the only person you know is maybe the dude or is the dude and his wife or you know their family, and you're being held captive by them, it's how do you break out of that? It's that's the challenge in a way. Yeah, that's part of your life, then, isn't it? And it's also um, going to be part of the way that you know, the world views you as well. So, so it's sort of you know every mark leaves its trace. So. You know, something's going to stick. Something's going to remain. So there's always, you know, whether it's hatred or hatred or um, you know, or you know, liking someone, it's going to remain. So it's uh, yeah, very difficult um, to know what's going through their minds. So absolutely, um, yeah. But in a way, too, it's it's a real testament to the indomitable nature of the human spirit with a lot of these cases. Uh, especially that Colleen Stan case, but also the case from India, the girl held for 25 years. I mean, these people, they survive. That's amazing. You know, it's really, it's really, in a way, it's the silver lining from the whole book, in a sense. It's that these, uh, most of these Mm. folks make it. Most of these folks come out of the situation and, and, you know, rebuild a life, which is, which is awesome. Yeah, some of them do. Um, they rebuild life. Others don't. Um, the, uh, so, you know, they have been very, you know, come out very scarred from the... Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, from the ordeals, of course. Yeah, so many of them do rebuild their life and um, done quite well. Um, and some of them, especially, um, I saw Elizabeth Smart... Uh, who we didn't cover, but that's, um, she's quite well known. And, um, she, uh, she managed to, you know, form, you know, build a, you know, a very solid life, uh, around, uh, around the outcome of her ordeal and managed to move on, um, quite remarkably with the support of the Mormon community. So that was, um, and same JT DeGard, um, they money, you're sort of, the interviews with them, and you think, God, you know, some, you people are so um, clear-headed, and you know, able to understand in great complexity about you know, all the, these people who you're with, and um, and your situation, and you know, very articulate. So, yeah, they come. It's quite good to when that occurs. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you, you did kind of remind me, yeah, the, the the Cleveland case in a way almost was sort of like the. 
crescendo of these other cases that led up to it. You know, the J.C. Dugard and the uh, Elizabeth Smart. It's like this has been this has been kind of making the news a lot in the last decade or, or so uh, here in America. So it's it's sort of a the awareness of the phenomenon is growing. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, I don't think people are going to forget the Cleveland case you know, anytime soon. So yeah, that was a that was like a like a textbook case. It was almost in a way like I said it was almost like a like like the universe winking at you saying, "Hey, we know you good job on the book because it's like that case could have fit seamlessly into this into this book. It's exactly the kind of stuff. You know, when I was telling people what I was doing the show about uh today, the easiest way to sum it up is, you know, like those girls in Cleveland. It's like the textbook version of this uh phenomenon. Yeah, I chose not to, I didn't want to um, wait to put the book out because a lot of the cases, I knew this was going to be a big case, the Cleveland one. Yeah, that was going to take, that was gonna take the, six the months out of your life, yeah. And, but um, that could, you know, when big cases happen, I think for the first few hours you, you get the truth or you get, you know, just information. And particularly these days, you know, after the first few hours of the, the first day or so, you start getting um, more opinion or conjecture coming through, and things get quite muddled. And as a, and you know, this information is being um, put over the internet or through news channels, and 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 then that can just take months or even up until the point of the court case to finally find out what exactly did occur. Um, so, so you know, a lot of books you sort of see. Someone has written, and you know, this case only happened like a month ago. I think there was one with the Cleveland one, and it came out, and it was only like a month or two afterwards. And it was, how do you know what happened? It's too quick. It's too soon. You don't know what's fact and what's fiction at this stage, and what's opinion. So I think you've got to be careful. And um, yeah, that's why writing the book, I was sort of, you know, short but dense. You know, you just give information over. If you want to make opinions about the case, then you know that's that's your choice, and you can make them. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, the book's outstanding in the sense that you can really uh, take little bite-sized pieces out of the book and enjoy, or for lack of a better term, enjoy uh, each of the stories. And they're really well put together, like you said. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's sort of a lead-up to the to the captivity. There's the events of the captivity, and uh, you know, there's the fallout from the from the uh, revelations of the captivity. Let's say. So it's a it's a really Finding well out the done. Of, thank you. I do appreciate it. I love the book, man. I I told you I have a real fascination with this phenomenon. It sounds it's funny you were talking about how sort of the Fritzl case uh, led to this sort of obsession with the phenomenon. I keep calling it a phenomenon. But mm. I guess that's probably the best way to put it because it is a phenomenon of human nature, uh, the captive human phenomenon. Having seen the Colleen Stan thing and then the Cleveland thing happened sort of right afterwards, it was like I need to know more about this. So uh, I was thrilled to find yeah. out about the book. Yeah, and there was. There hasn't been one for a while, so but, you know. Hopefully, there's not one for a while. You might get a break from it. Um, yeah. Have you have you discovered any new cases since the book came out? Obviously, aside from the Cleveland one, has anything else popped up that you're like, oh, that would have been good for the book, or or, or maybe uh, you know one that you're looking into now? The one in the one in Texas, um, I thought was very interesting. Uh, I didn't get much media attention, but it's been pretty quiet. Um, it's sort of the smaller one, as, as I mentioned earlier, in um, in China, I just find that quite fascinating. That it's sort of a cultural 
interesting um, you know, culture element that you know, makes it almost acceptable. So, yeah, it hasn't yeah. been. You know, it's been a bit quiet on the captive humans front at the moment, but you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, and it, it speaks to the nature of of the whole thing in a way where it's it, it's it's hard to explain. It's like a plane crash. You know, it's you, you, mm-hmm. it'll happen out of nowhere. I can hang up the phone right now and turn on the TV, and it'll be girl found in Philadelphia that had been held captive for seven years. You know, you're not gonna you, yeah. you're not gonna see it coming at all. So it could happen at no, any moment. You're not going to see or see which country is going to come from. All the motivation behind it. it um, it's only really, you know, looking back at the in retrospect to see the people involved. You know, yeah, there has been a lead up. To this, it doesn't generally happen. It doesn't appear to happen just out of you know one day someone just makes up their mind. There seems to be a whole history behind it. All the cases. Now, I don't know if you've looked into this, but if folks aren't as if folks aren't terrified and horrified by now by this phenomenon, I don't know what uh, will make them be. But what what troubles me, what sort of gnaws it in my mind in a way. Is and I would love it if you. I don't know what you're doing next. That's kind of like the setup here to what you're doing next. But you know what would be interesting is a look, mm. because you just looked sort of at modern cases of this. I can only imagine. Yeah. I can only imagine the, the horrifying, frightening, unsettling any any word you want to use uh, nature of this phenomenon going further back in time when when culture was different. You know, I mean, can you imagine the kind of things that might have happened in Renaissance England back in the day or or yeah. anywhere else in the world in, in different eras? Uh, this clearly has been going on for a long, long time. So I, I would love it if you looked more into that eventually, but I, I don't want to – I'm not your manager, so. A lot of that hasn't been recorded in historical cases. There was – one, I think it was the Wolf Boy of Germany, and that was, I don't know, if the 1600s or something, and that was just one that was so far back, and um, apparently he came out of being held in a, uh, under a house for uh, several years, and it sort of, and, and it was unclear whether it actually occurred or not, or whether it was folklore, or whether it was based on, you know, you know, part here and part there of you know, actual cases and you know, they got put together over time. So, yeah, the, the um, things that I think just a lot wouldn't have been recorded um, a while ago and or maybe it is and we just need to find it. Yeah, that's true too. If it was culturally more accepted, then it wouldn't be titillating enough to record in a sense. You know what I mean? If they were like, yeah, he kept him, he kept his daughter captive for 25 years. That happens. That's the way it is. It's like it wouldn't be, it, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal to people so they wouldn't write it down or record it back in the day. Yeah, it's just the done thing, you know, the people, um, that the people may have just done it throughout, throughout, you know, Europe in those times. I mean, you remember the, uh, the Stephen King book, uh, Pet Cemetery, and their family had the um, the deformed sister who lived up in her attic bedroom and they kept her there the whole life and it was just a family secret until she died. So, you know, we don't know where else it's occurred. Yeah. But as we said earlier, it's probably happening like all over the planet all the time right now. Well, not all the time, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it's clearly happening and also, right now. <laughs> and also we're only hearing about um, sort of from countries 
that, you know, some more westernized countries, a lot of them. Um, so, you know, different countries of South America, um, especially with human trafficking and, um, throughout Africa and other parts of, um, Asia, we didn't, um, that wasn't those aspects. I didn't explore those at all because I'm sure there's cases for different cultural reasons that are occurring that we aren't, you know, that we just aren't privy to. So yeah. it'd be interesting to look at, you know, even, you know, you know, broader scope as well to see what else could come out of it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's what I also liked about the book a lot because, uh, you know, here in America, the news is very Americanized foreign stories with the exception of uh, the Fritzl case, which was so off the wall bizarre yeah. that it became like a, a story here in America. You just, I hadn't heard about almost any of these international cases in the book. And as I said, 11 countries, uh, folks, where this kind of stuff has happened. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, we're lucky in Australia because we're quite, we digest a lot of, a lot of um, international news. Uh, so we get a lot of it, particularly from America, but Europe and um, other places in the, um, around the globe. So people are quite interested in uh, global events in Australia. So you can have quite a broad scope. So we have heard of um, some of them, but you know, that's what a number of people who read the book who just said they um, they they just not heard of these cases before. So and that was because then that was a fascinating bit, and and that's hopefully for an audience. And for a reader, that's, um, you know, hopefully that's my job done. Yeah, man. You did an outstanding job on this book. Now, what's next for you? Uh, do you have any plans to sort of continue in the true crime realm? And, and do you have uh, a, a sort of topic that you might want to tackle next? I'll probably um, update Captive Humans a little bit down the track. Um, not at the moment. At the moment, I'm working on a... a, a, a um, historical novel that sent, set it around, um, around my town of where I live, um, called Melbourne, and, uh, it's about sort of events that happened, you know, about a century ago, and it's one of those ones where I, I, you know, I came across it, um, just a small article, and I was like, what? I never heard of this. And so, um, and then I sort of explored it and explored it and found it was a much larger story, so, um, I'm doing, a young adult novel based around uh, events of you know, 100 years ago in town, and, and when I mention it to people, um, that they they themselves, you know, no one's heard of this stuff, and it's like it's all sitting on our back doors, but it's just you know, covered in the past. So I just want to bring that up. So um, yeah, so that's my main focus at this stage. Okay. Now I got to ask you here. I'm on the. Captive Humans website, CaptiveHumans.com. Tell me a little bit about this uh, lady's handbook of murder, because that looks like a. I don't know if this is your work, or uh, for no, that okay. That's one of my friend's work. I did the graphic design. For okay, it. yeah, because the layout um, is so similar. I was like, oh, did you do yeah. all this too? Because <laughs> this is awesome I, too. This is amazing that's my, stuff. That's my friend. So she she was looking at um um you know, murders throughout history so and but she sort of writes hers I was more factual about the way I write but she's more sort of does it more with a com- comedic slant with hers and she looks at um, cases that aren't familiar as well um, she doesn't sort of go straight into the Alan Wernos story mm. but looks at you know um, cases you know that may be 150 years old and uh, explores those, those and sort of says you know, you know the one happened in um 
in our hometown, and it was just like, well, I hadn't heard of this before as well. And so, yeah, I just think you know, that's um, that's my friend's friend's work, and she's hopefully one day will release a book about it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I stumbled across a potential uh, future edition of the show here with that with that website. So maybe I'll pester you for some contact info if she'd be down for a show. Oh, sure, no worries. Well, I gotta thank you, David, for coming on the show. I know the uh, the book came out a couple of years ago, and folks can get it pretty much anywhere. It is, of course, Captive Humans: True Crime Cases of People Held Captive. It is outstanding, folks. And as I said at the beginning of the program, uh, as morose as it sounds, it's the perfect beach book right now for folks who are doing some traveling because you can tackle the book in bite-sized pieces and, and, and digest each one of these really crazy stories. And as David said. And what I like to do, too, uh, from reading the book is, you know, some of these cases stand out. It's like, that's an interesting one, this David Bisson case uh, or the Kyle Ramirez case. You can kind of punch it into the Google and, and, and dig even deeper into it and delve even further into yeah. the stuff. So uh, it's an amazing yeah. survey of these cases and uh, a fantastically well put together book and just really, really, really strong stuff. So I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, David, and I really enjoyed the book quite a bit. I appreciate that. Thank you very much.